Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. I woke up with a little frog in my throat. You look great. There are a lot of you in here. I'm glad that you came, and I just want to say Merry Christmas to all of you. And uh, we're just excited to talk about the Christmas story. You know what we're going to talk about the Christmas story? I believe in Christmas because the story is just so incredible. In fact, the Christmas story combines your worst moment with God's best moment. And so we've got to talk about the Christmas story. But first, I've got to tell you about the Sunday school teacher who was explaining all of this to her five-year-old class. And at the end of the class, she asked them, how do you get into heaven? She said, do you think that you need to sell everything that you have and give it to the church and that will get you into heaven? And the the five-year-old said, no. She said, well, do you think you need to take your entire life and spend all of your time at church? Do you think that'll get you into heaven? And the kid said, no. One five-year-old boy at the back who was very brave raised his hand and says, I know how to get into heaven. You gotta die, dead people get into heaven. (laughs) Out of the mouth of children is a lot of wisdom, right? Death is a prerequisite. And and the truth is, as we think about that this morning, we kind of get to pause in the middle of a very busy life, but you don't think about this very often. And this is one of those moments we wanna give you to think about it. How do you get into heaven? Did you know that 90% of Americans believe in heaven? And most of them believe they're going there. And the reason that most people give that they are going to get into heaven is one common assumption, and it is this. Most people believe, well, good people go to heaven. And I do some good sometimes, So I should be good to make it into heaven. Now let me ask you a question because you're a really smart looking audience. How many of you have done some good things in your life at least once? Just raise your hand. Those of you, wow, a few of you haven't, okay. Hey, you're here today, that's a good thing. Try it again. How many of you have done at least one good thing in your lifetime? A few more, good. All right, well let's see what kind of a crowd we have today. How many of you would admit that you've done at least some bad things in your life. Wow, you're a lot more proud to put your hands up. That's fascinating. Well, the truth is all of us have done some good things and all of us have done some bad things. And the trick is, well, how do we know if we've been good enough? If this is the mantra, how do we know if we have been good? Like if I compare myself to some bad people like Hitler, I'm good. If I compared myself to some amazing people like Mother Teresa, I might be in trouble. So what's the standard, who's the judge, and who's doing the scoring in the end so that I know, because there's too much at stake to get this one wrong. How do I know if I've been good enough? And this is where the Christmas story steps in. Because that's why Jesus came. It's why every year we stop and think again about the greatest story ever told. Because if God is really good, he would want us to know the answer to that question the Sunday school teacher was asking. If God is really good and we can't get to him, then he would come to us. 
This is where the Christmas story steps in to answer the question. But here's the surprising part. And if you're new, this might be a part you've never heard. If you come here regularly, this might be a part you're not familiar with. Jesus came to say that good people don't go to heaven. He came to introduce in the Christmas story that forgiven people go to heaven. And all of a sudden, we all have hope because we already admitted we need forgiveness. And Jesus came to say, it isn't about what we will do, but what he has done that qualifies us for that longing that's in all of our hearts. So we got to look at it today. Now, you just got to know, we're going to look at this story of Jesus' birth. Matthew chapter 1, if you got your Bibles, you want to turn there. Otherwise, it's going to come on the screen. But here's what I want you to know. We're going to begin with the very first words of the New Testament. You think about it how long it had been since the New Testament, there was this gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some scholars believe 400 years, they call it the dark period. And then the New Testament shows up and the very first words in the New Testament are the ones we're gonna look at today. And it precedes Jesus's birth. But before Jesus was born that first Christmas, we get these verses that give Jesus's family tree. And it's fascinating. You probably have never looked at it in light of Christmas, but that's what we're going to look at today. I don't know if any of you are like into Ancestry.com and you like to look at your family tree. I've never really spent much time with that. My mom's really into that. She loves to do that. But what you need to know about family trees in ancient times, it was like a resume. You carried it with you. It was documentation you had with you. And you would show it off to give you access to things. And you would scrub the bad people Some of us wouldn't make other people's genealogy, right? And you would highlight the good people because you want it to be a really good resume. And so what I want us to do as we prepare to look at Matthew 1 is to realize that isn't all of us. That's kind of how we do our social media, right? We scrub the bad and we highlight the good. I was talking to my mom just this week because she's really into this family tree thing. And and I was asking her about, you know, what's in our heritage? And I said, give me the good and the bad. You know what she did? She gave me the good from her side and the bad from my dad's side. I kid you not. In fact, my mom's watching today. I told her, I said, I'm going to tell everybody what you, what you told me. She said, on my side of the family were all the policemen and the pastors. On your dad's side of the family were all the criminals. She said, some of your dad's family actually ended up Uh, sheltering Bonnie and Clyde when they were on the run. They actually babysat Lee Harvey Oswald's kids. Like, she said, meanwhile, on my side, and she tells me all this, I was like, she's doing what they did back in ancient times. We scrub the bad and we highlight the good. I'm sure they're right, good and bad on both sides, right? But we all do that. And so as we look at Jesus's family tree, this is what's so shocking. He didn't do that. Instead, His family tree is full of scandals. And it doesn't make any sense unless you know why he came. Because the family tree of Jesus reveals who he came from and who he came for. The type of people he came from indicates the type of people he came for. And you got to see this because before we get to the birth, this was what was given to us first. Matthew chapter 1, look with me real quick at those very beginning verses. In Matthew chapter 1, 
beginning in verse one, we see the family tree and it says, the genealogy of Jesus. So we stop right there. The genealogy of Jesus, you expect it to be superstars, you expect it to be influencers like kings and, and prince and princess, like it's gonna be a big deal, right? But watch his genealogy. It says, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we have to pause here because if you're new to the Bible, you might not know the significance of this first statement through this. These are the first words of the New Testament. Here's why it's such a big deal. Because 2,000 years before Jesus, God went to a man named Abraham and said, I'm going to form a nation with you through whom the Messiah will come. And year after year, after decade, after decade, after century, after century, nothing. And all of a sudden, Matthew chapter 1, here he is, the Messiah. It reminds us that Jesus is a prediction and he is a fulfillment of a promise God made. Our God keeps his promises. And I don't know what you're wrestling with right now. You may be thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And you may just need to hear the beginning of that genealogy to know God will keep his promises. Now, as we continue to read, though, we continue to see an interesting group of names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this is odd because an ancient custom was that you didn't include women in your genealogy. It was always fathers and male relatives. But in Jesus' family tree, in this one chapter, these six verses, there are four different women mentioned. Not only was that unusual, but this particular woman, we're going to look at her in a second, it was surprising to see her name there. And then we continue on. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was. And once again, there's Rahab, another female who you wouldn't expect to see in the family tree of Jesus. We keep going. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. There's Ruth. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. And then Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, who was the father of Solomon, who was the mother of Uriah's wife. Bathsheba is in the genealogy of Jesus. And you go, now, who are these people again? Well, I'm really glad that you asked because I wanted to tell you anyway. First, we have Judah and Tamar. I want you to notice something about Judah and Tamar. He's the father-in-law. She's the daughter-in-law. And he fathered a baby with his daughter-in-law. It was like, you're talking about scandal back then? It's like a scandal would be right now. In fact, you would expect scripture to scrub that from the story. But instead, their worst moment became God's best moment. And Jesus is proud to put them in his family tree because he loves Judah and Tamar. And then we keep going though, and look at Rahab. Rahab was also in there. Remember, Rahab was someone in scripture who was both a Gentile, meaning she was non-Jewish, and she was a prostitute. She was trying to figure out how to survive. She isn't the princess you would expect to be included in the, in the family tree. She's the prostitute you would expect to be excluded from the family tree. But her worst moment was God's best moment. And Jesus loves Rahab. And we keep going though, and then we see Ruth. You remember Ruth. 
Ruth was the one who was a complete outsider. She was the one living in Moab. Her, her husband, brother-in-law, father-in-law all died. She follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, all the way back to Israel. And while they're there, she's now an immigrant. She looks different. She acts different. She eats different. Everybody goes, she's not one of us. And maybe you feel that way like a complete outsider. And yet Jesus was proud to include her in his family tree. She was part of his family because Jesus loved Ruth. And then lastly, David. It's really David and Bathsheba, but we know David is the one who had authority and power. And when he went and had this adulterous affair, he misused his power. And eventually that affair led to a murder. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And their worst moment became God's best moment. And Jesus was proud to have them in his family tree. This is an entire scandal of six verses, and we haven't even gotten to the birth of Jesus yet, which, by the way, was also scandalous. Remember just a few verses later where Jesus shows up. It's in verse 23. Look what it says. Matthew 1, chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 23, it says, the virgin will conceive, and you're like, wait a minute. We have a pregnant virgin that doesn't make sense. It's scandalous. It's shocking. People are talking about it. They're whispering about it. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. Joseph was even thinking of divorcing her because he was like, I'm not going to fulfill my commitment to marry her because he didn't understand initially. It was scandalous. Oh, but God was fulfilling a promise. She gave birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Would you just say this verse out loud with me? Say it with me. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew 1, 23. Now, you gotta ask this question after what we've been talking about. Why? Why didn't Jesus do what everybody else did and just highlight the noble people? Why did he insist on these others? Why did he insist on these scandals being part of his family tree. What was Jesus wanting us to know? And this is it. I hope you don't miss this. This is what I firmly believe Jesus wants me to know and you to know. That Jesus came from sinners and he came for sinners. It is why he came. And who he came from indicates who he came for. He came for all of us who raised our hands so quickly, almost proudly, we're in a hurry to say, I've done a lot of bad. I've not been perfect. Jesus came from sinners, and he came for sinners. Here's why that's important on a day like today. It's easy to look around a room like this and to think everybody else has it together. I mean, everybody's dressed nice. Everybody's got a smile. You may look around and go, man, those families even look like they like each other, right? And yet you may be that spouse, you walked in and you're like, man, we had a big argument on the way here this morning. You may be, you know, me and my kids, like we had it out this morning on the way here. That car ride, I wouldn't want to have been public. You may be here and you look around and what you don't know is you're sitting around a whole bunch of imperfect people. You're shoulder to shoulder. You look around here and you see a whole bunch of people who wrestle in relationships a whole bunch of people who've struggled with divorce, a bunch of people who've struggled with addictions, 
a bunch of people who struggled with embarrassing past, who struggled with certain secrets that they hold, fearing they will become public. We are a room full of imperfect people. And here's the really good news. Jesus knows about them all. He loves us all. And his family tree proves it. Our worst moment becomes God's best moment. Because the truth is, there is a catch. And you gotta know this. There is one catch. A perfect savior, perfect story, offering a perfect love. Here's the catch. You can never earn this kind of love that would cover the sins that you and I carry. You could never claw your way to this kind of love. You couldn't perform your way to it. There's one thing you and I are invited to do with this kind of unconditional love, and that is to surrender to it and to fall at the Savior's feet and to recognize he came for you. He was born to die. On the cross, we aren't graded on a curve, we're graded on the cross where Jesus went to a tree so that you and I could be set free. But it isn't through something we do, but rather a posture of the heart where we surrender. There isn't any way we could earn this kind of love. We are clawing in everything that we do. We want what he is offering. But it isn't good people who go to heaven. It's forgiven people who go to heaven. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity to make that great decision to surrender to this Jesus on this Christmas day. As we think about this season, would you be willing? Do you feel the creator of the universe who might be stirring in your heart, inviting you to come and surrender to him? And so here's what I want to do in this, in this moment is I just want to ask everybody to just close your eyes. Maybe you want to lower your head. And I just want to give you privacy in this moment and give the people around you privacy in this moment by closing your eyes and lowering your head. And I want to lead those of you who want to make this bold decision. I want to lead you in a prayer. There's nothing magic in the prayer, but it is an opportunity for you to make the decision once and for all to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here and you would say, you know what, I've, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to surrender to him. I know I'll never be good enough, but I want to receive this forgiveness. In the privacy of this moment, I want to lead you in a prayer. But if that's you, with every eye closed, would you just let me know that's you? Would you just by lift your hand so I can see you? Would you just lift right now? I'm going to pray for you. There we go. Anybody else? Yes. Who else? Yes, thank you. Thank you for your courage and your honesty. I want to lead you in a prayer. And as I pray, you just quietly say this prayer after me as you make the decision to follow this Jesus who left heaven to come to earth that first Christmas day so that you could be forgiven and have a relationship with your heavenly father. Pray this after me. Father, I know I am a sinner in need of a savior. I could never be good enough. 
Lord, I know that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross who rose from the dead, proving victory over everything, including death. And so today, I make him my savior and my Lord. I want him to be the boss of my life. And I want to follow him for the rest of my life. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, that first Christmas. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.